Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. Well, welcome to the latest episode of Lunch with Tech Leaders. My name is Ray Welker. I'm a cloud solutions architect with Right Brain Networks, and I'm going to be your host today. Uh, joining me is Adam Oberhausen, as well as our co-host, um, software and data consultant, Tom Kowalski. And uh, in this episode, we're going to discuss uh, some core strategies and share some best practices for implementing infrastructure as code. So we got a packed agenda, lots to talk about today. So grab your lunch, maybe a notepad and buckle up. Do it. Yeah. All right. So infrastructure as code, right? You know, it's, I think we're all have had some hands-on experience with it at this point. Been around for quite a while. It's, it's really the management and provisioning of infrastructure through code and automation scripts rather than, you know, manual definition of it. Pretty much supported across all all the various clouds now. Um, you know, even, you know, Alibaba, I think you can have a, uh, you, you can have a uh, provider for that and you can write Terraform for it. Primarily, we work with AWS, Azure, uh, GCP. There's some cloud native tools that like infrastructure is code tools like CloudFormation and CDK that are a little bit more native to AWS, uh, even though you can do Terraform uh, CDK nowadays, it can span across multiple clouds. But I think a lot of the best practices that I think that we've just kind of found over the years and, you know, through research and whatnot kind of apply to all the tools regardless, regardless of what you write. So main things we're going to focus on, I think, would be Terraform, CloudFormation, and primarily, you know, uh, AWS, the cloud for being the source there. But uh, I guess overall, do you guys recognize some of the core benefits of infrastructure as code? I'm intrigued by, you know, saying automation scripts, you know, you know, and kind of where do you draw the line or do you differentiate between infrastructure as code where you're kind of, you know, setting the state of where you want to be versus, uh, you know, running a script, right? It's almost borderline manual. Yeah. I, I would say, I would say, yeah, automation scripts are probably a little outside of infrastructure as code, mostly because it's, you know, working, working with API and or the, you know, just the CLI, which interfaces with the API in order to, you know, provision something in your cloud. So I would say that that is out, uh, it, it provisioning infrastructure through scripting is probably not something I would consider infrastructure as code, but maybe using automation scripts in terms of like testing can still be um, as well as like, you know, security and vulnerability finding within your infrastructure's code could be a component of that. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of open source tooling, uh, which I would consider, you know, there's scripts in general to, to test your code for vulnerabilities, uh, sanity checking against, you know, uh, resource guidelines, like for AWS, uh, kind of just do some validation and whatnot. I would kind of consider that more so still a component of IAC and uh, just a way to maybe produce better code. That's kind of my thought. Usually fill in the gaps. It's kind of yeah, exactly. Yeah. Notice that there's some type of yeah. script or whatever in there. You know, circling back to your question, Ray, which was like some of the maybe the 
core benefits of infrastructure as code. And, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a ton, I'm sure you've got a list that you're going to rattle off, but you know, when I think about coming from a developer background, you know, your code that you write goes into a repository that is version controlled and you can track all that history and changes of, of, uh, everything you did. Infrastructure is in a different spot. Like you can't, you, you can't, like you couldn't write code without writing code. Right. So, uh, with infrastructure, you can do infrastructure without writing code. So, you, you know, organizations have that option to not to bypass infrastructure as code. I've seen lots of companies don't have infrastructure as code. Um, so what you end up is having, you know, those knowledge silos of people who, you know, have built the infrastructure by hand or maybe they have, there could be configuration drift in all these environments. So I think from just an organizational perspective, like you just have to table infrastructure as code is like table stakes. I feel like you have to do it, um, in terms of like just being a successful, mature software company. Like you just, you just, you should, you should have infrastructure as code, um, so that you can create repeatable environments, Um, avoid configuration drift and understand how things are configured in general. So that would be, yeah. I think you touched on a big one there, which is that audibility aspect of it. You know, you're, you're following some sort of Git flow at this point. So, you know, it just makes sense by having remote repositories as well as some form of version controlling, like that just increases visibility into, uh, any changes that happen with, happen with the infrastructure. So, I mean, kind of, kind of adopting that approach and, you know, version controlling your, uh, infrastructure's code as well is a very valuable process, especially if you get into a position where, you know, commit some bad code, uh, you have prior commits you can revert back to, you know, cherry pick out maybe the necessary code and revert some of the, uh, um, revert whatever breaking changes may have been, you know, implemented, but it just kind of, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a lot more, uh, I think today now following SDLC processes with infrastructure as code as well as, as, as a general best practice you know, trying to shift that further left and get more visibility early on, uh, with your infrastructure and, uh, you know, prevent changes, breaking changes happening later in the process. But yeah, your need for like the comment as well with scalability, it's huge. I mean, like you can produce repeatable code that you can, you know, you can also scale your code at that, at that level as well. You know, if you want to deploy out to multiple environments, for example, you can reuse the same patterns, the same code and play that out as needed and just overall saving saving overall ops time i would say yeah it kind of allows you to one of the mantras i always tried to stick to is like your operations and infrastructure should always be ahead of the development needs you don't want the i mean they should all be working together with collaboration all that but like you don't want your lack of infrastructure as code to be a bottleneck if your delivery team's trying to build something new or scale out something much better to be able to modify some infrastructure is code versus like pushing a bunch of bu- buttons and pulling levers in the AWS console. Right. So you need to be careful too, right? You know, Adam, you threw out, right? Like, oh, you know, you should be doing, or you need to be doing it as a, a modern, uh, software development organization. I, th- I think you just need to be careful with that and how it gets implemented. You know, obviously anything new that you're doing and a new solution, yes, it's a no brainer. You should be using infrastructure as code. Where I see the problem as existing applications and, you know, if your organization isn't 
quite set up to handle that. Uh, you know, maybe you do have those silos of operations and devs, you know, and, and you think, oh, we have to do infrastructure as code. And, you know, you have, might have an operations team that's working on over here and, uh, you know, it's still separated out and it, you're, you're going to run into problems uh, with that. So it, it's okay to have, you know, the, the operations, you know, owning it, working on it. But I, I can always say you, it needs to flow up to one team, right? Or, you know, one person that kind of owns that application holistically and can make those decisions, uh, you know, across the infrastructure and development. Uh, so yeah, I just have to say that out there, caution, right? It's usually the the tools can be implemented and, and be great, uh, but you have to have that that organizational structure to be able to handle it. Sometimes the the tools can lead, and you know the organizational structure follows it. Um, but yeah, other times it's it's hard, right? And you you get into that um, where they they clash. So just just be aware of that, right? Whenever you hear, oh, you got to be doing this or that, or uh, it's it's always it depends. You know, it, it is a great thing, but you got to be. I think that's really interesting what you said. You see that so often, right? You see, um, you know, kind of the tool trying to lead the way, but there's no overall strategy. And when you have existing applications and maybe an approach where yeah, we're trying to buy into this infrastructure as code idea, but it's it's kind of like ad hoc and each team's doing their own thing. Uh, it doesn't really, it, it, that can cause problems, I feel like, kind of as a more of an organizational, like it's a business issue at that point, or at least an organizational pro problem at that point, because you don't really have any global direction, I would say, from the organization of how you should be implementing IAC. And that can lead to problems as you're trying to maybe, you know, share information across teams at a later point. Like I, I always feel like, you know, it's a good practice to try to break down those silos, those knowledge centers and share information across the organization, or at least write and follow practices that are standard across your different teams. And if you don't do that, hopefully you're following some other things like, you know, good documentation or something like that. So you can get people up to speed. I think like, yeah, having a good strategy in place is is more important than actually just, hey, we're going to use this tool now. You should have a plan to it. And I think we can talk about like what a good plan looks like here today. There's a big thing that we talked about here and I think kind of transitions well, which is like structure overall of your infrastructure, like uh, of your infrastructure as code. You know, sh should that be coupled with the application or should you separate that? Could Should you have a mono repo or should you have a macro repo or, uh, you know, some, something like that? Those are always decisions I feel like that kind of need to be talked about quite a bit before just making that approach. Because once you kind of start it, it's 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 hard to walk away and decouple it at a later point if you make a change. I've always team everything in the repo, right? But this again, right? If you're doing something new, um, yeah, I highly recommend everything from the the pipeline tests, your infrastructure's code, the application code, business logic all of it right for that workload should be in the same repo i'm in the same camp as you tom yeah 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 i think it helps people that uh contribute to the repo in whatever capacity it is like having everything in that repo with the proper documentation in the repo is preferable too with readmes and whatnot versus having to go to an external source like yeah. a jira that in my experience uh is, is my preference I've seen it both ways where you have like the infrastructure repos in a separate spot and it can work. 
and it makes sense for some things. Uh, you know, I think we recently did some work with a client. You know, they kind of have this spread out, all these apps spread out, distributed amongst repos and, and global teams. And, you know, we needed to provide an automation solution that was going to impact all these apps. And so we could either repeat the code in each repo or we could create one repo that centralizes this automation because it's doing it. It's basically doing the same thing for all these all these different applications. So, you know, I think there's always use cases where it makes sense to break things out. But in general, my rule of thumb is the closer you can keep it to the to the source code uh, is is better. Yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. Is there are situations where perhaps they are may have more of like a global. Um, you know, a global repo, it's, it, it doesn't need to be within the application code itself, but like, you know, it's, it's kind of a more, um, I don't know, there, there's use cases for both. Uh, generally I like, you know, if it's, if it's related to the application, you know, your infrastructure as code should be, should be there as well. There's, there's pros and cons to either approach. Um, I mean, I think the biggest drawbacks of, uh, having that so tightly coupled to your code is, is more so, uh, like access control related. Um, it, it, it's a little harder to control direct access to the application um, and its source code than if, if, if uh, you know, if things were separated out. So, you know, ops may have same permissions as dev. Generally, there's, you know, ops is generally not probably not touching the application code itself. So in itself, it's kind of safe, but it, it can also make it a little bit more robust to read. It, it can become a little bit more complex. Just just to touch on that, right? It could make it harder, but once you have you know the, the systems in place and you know, good get ops and permissions, um, it it actually becomes easier, right? If you can you know st standardize that, really get your your process down, um, and then also on the, the compliance side, there's you know some may say, oh well, we can't do that, you're right, compliance. I, I've seen it all of the you know SOC two. Uh, PCI, the higher level ones, uh, you can, you can do that, right? You can, there's mitigations and, uh, controls that you can put in place where, yeah, you can have your infrastructure and code in the same repo and yeah, there's no quote me right to the, your auditors may say different, but there's, there's ways around it. To quote Tommy from a previous episode, it depends. <laughs> so I'd say like even more to maybe touch on some other best practices is separating out your files into it just to make them more readable you know take terraform for example you know you have a place where you can declare your variables a place where you get a file you can clear your outputs and then for example you maybe have you know your main where your actual resource definitions live i think just having a good overall file structure for your infrastructure's code makes sense same for cloud formation you know perhaps we have folders directly related to some some component for a stack I'm deploying. So so perhaps take an example would be like, you know, if I'm trying to de deploy like a self-hosted GitLab, for example, within my, I would say my mono repo, all of my infrastructure is code. If it's maybe like going into a shared, shared services out, I might have like a GitLab folder in there for a GitLab related cloud formation stack that has all the necessary security groups, you know, maybe the, the ECS cluster, if it's living within its own, Past definition, pretty much any component in there, uh, I guess, properly defined within its own subfile. So, like having a VPC.tf or a VPC. Uh, or excuse me, security groups. You know, TF or JSON or YAML. If I'm writing 
CloudFormation, for example. But just kind of separating out those resources into to logical groupings, I think just makes adoption of anybody else coming into that that code base to to be able to pick it up a lot easier. I think that kind of gets into the readability aspect of defining your infrastructure as code. It's it's you know it should be self declarative. If things are structured well and your resources are named well, it, it should be able to document itself, and you should be able to just look at it without needing to read or read me. But that in itself is a good thing. I think as well to have to have that coupled with it as you know some sort of external documentation to the code. But but yeah, I I, I think like that that's a good standard practice for whatever. Whatever IAC you, you you write, just having some good, well-defined names for your various various files. Following up on that, Ray, how do you make sure that your infrastructure as code is reusable? Right, you know, you could have the situation where you have like six environments and they're all, you know, they should be all identical. Is it the best practice to like copy that VPC file into each folder for each environment, or can you? Is there some ways to share? Kind of following the dry principle, uh, you know, um, don't repeat yourself. Um, is there is there ways to do that with infrastructure as code? That's using, yeah, uh, there, there definitely is. And yeah, creating reusable code, I think, is a very good standard best practice. Don't really need to duplicate yourself. And, and that's pretty much just having parameterized names for both resources as well as your values you're passing into your resources so that you can say like create a top level stack that passes in the various values to say hello world ECS app or something like that. I might be able to copy that same stack, pass in different parameters and create a hello world two app or something like that. Or maybe this is my, my actual functioning product. Um, you know, so, so keeping names well described, I would say, so kind of, you know, passing in what, what we like to do at RBN at least is, you know, have, have a service parameter, have a environment parameter, maybe an organization slash account parameter. Um, and then uh, sometimes it can get a little bit more specific to like product as well, possibly. So, so those are, you know, a couple top level values that might change, but you could still reuse the underlying code because I'm still creating, you know, an ECS cluster um, or an ECS task definition and a security group. Um, so parameterizing as much as possible and, um, you know, just changing, changing the values when you actually call that stack, I think are the best, a best approach to reusing some of that code. Yeah. And as you were talking there, I couldn't help but think about the ability to make sure your resources are properly tagged using infrastructure as code. I mean, huge Mm -hmm. win gives you that granularity from a cost optimization you know, you can specify an owner tag so you know exactly who owns the resource. So I think just, you know, a big benefit circling back to some of the core benefits of, of infrastructure as code is just like your ability to tag every resource and make sure that you're, you have consistent tagging across every thing you're doing in any of the cloud environments you're building is, is a great way. I think it's really easy to say that's not important to do or, you know, it's not a priority because we're growing and spend is not an issue, but then all of a sudden it is an issue and much easier. It's so easy to set it up from the get-go using your infrastructure's code. So, yeah, I feel like there should always be like uh, there should be like a one-on-one class to uh, standardizing and best practices for your mm-hmm. AWS cloud or or any cloud um, you know that you're trying to adopt because it's a lot easier to set things up when you first get started than it is to readjust things later on. And 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 this is AWS specific in this case, but like to your point around tagging, enforcing mm-hmm. that at organizational level, I think is. Uh, is a great 
idea in, 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 in theory with prod, it may not be in existing accounts. It may not be one in practice until, uh, you know, you maybe get a little bit further along. Things are rectified prior to enabling that, but at least, yeah, you get visibility, um, into where your resources are in AWS, you know, what's contributing to spend. And there's just so much you can do with tags. I mean, you can, you can do automations based tags as well, which is, uh, you know, you can, you can include them as a part of some sort of, you know, automated workflow. Mm-hmm. I think a big thing we were doing now was, you know, based on a scheduler, um, you know, trying to schedule for a client, you know, some start and stop. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be, there's a million different ways you could do that. There's, you know, not a million, but a few different ways you could do that. But, uh, you know, having well-defined tags ensures that, you know, we're, we're targeting the, the proper product and the proper resource. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't have any drift and there's no risk associated with other products. And that's where it comes into like, you know, clear naming of resources. Well, that's kind of that tagging approach and the parameterized approach of talking about with some of the variables that you'd pass in proper naming of your resources. So you can quickly identify if you need to go into the console, you know, what, what something belongs to goes a long way. Yeah. There's a great video. Um, I watch about naming conventions by Robert Martin under his clean, clean code, um, video series where, um, just is a 44 minute episode on just naming, right. And descriptive names. And it applies to your infrastructure as code as well. So it's a, it's a good watch. I worked with Tom for many years. Naming was often yeah, uh, the source of many critical decisions, right? I mean, it's just like you get hung up on a naming convention and you have to stick yeah. with it and it needs to be meaningful. It needs to make sense. It needs to, you know, you don't need to write, you shouldn't be writing a comment to explain why something is named the way it is. Um, so there's a lot of thought that goes into naming and almost everything um, people in our line of work do. So, yeah, the qu- question that we would ask is, would you be embarrassed by this name in five, ten years looking at this code, right? And it makes you, you know, step back and think about it. Like, yeah, maybe it should be named differently. Yeah, I guess another another key aspect of could talk about is like, how, how do you guys handle secrets in codes? Like, what 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 are some things that you've found that work? Um, you know, both in say app development as well as infrastructure as code. Uh, well, I really like the secrets manager tools out there in the in the cloud services um i've worked with gcp's uh secret manager and also aws's and uh yeah just really easy to use definitely want to avoid hard coding your secrets in your code things like your api keys database credentials there's there's services that store these now in the cloud for you that are dirt cheap they can even do um most of them provide like automation automated rotation of keys i haven't worked at that too much yeah, I mean, and it's just like you said earlier, there's there's a million ways to to skin a cat here. What I just threw out are some of the managed services, but I've even seen just use you know encrypting a file in S3 um, that you download and decrypt, and you know it, it sets your environment variables on your on your instance. Like there's 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 many ways to solve this problem, but the best practice is to uh, you know just avoid putting your your secrets in your code directly because it's a big no no and can lead to some really bad outcomes. And some acknowledging postmortems. Definitely agree with that. And uh, I feel like it's not as commonplace to actually see like hard coded secrets nowadays. I feel like a lot of people are kind of following the practice to some degree. Um, you know, what you know, what are what are we going to actually like what are we going to store and what are we actually gonna consider like API keys, passwords, so mm-hmm. forth. 
leveraging all the managed services are definitely what I'd recommend. And I think you brought up an interesting point about, yeah, like setting environment variables in, in a way that's like kind of like an automated script prior to like doing some form of deployment, you know, or, or even like, yeah, ensuring, ensuring that that's encrypted, I think is a, uh, a great, it's definitely a great practice. You, you want to ensure it's encrypted at rest as well as in transit if possible. So I haven't worked a ton in Terraform. I've done, like I mentioned earlier, Ray, a lot of labs, a lot of online learnings, but like, how does Terraform, I think I may, may say CloudFormation, how does Terraform, how do you reference a secret in AWS Secrets Manager in your template? Do you, is it just like a built-in thing or like, how do you actually? Source. Yeah, there's there's a data source within Terraform that you would call, there's like AWS and of course Secrets Manager data source. You pass in the secret name and it, and it you know, it, it writes that object as the as the secret type essentially, and it knows how to handle it for you know if I'm working with AWS for example. It's like your the role that is executing that infrastructure as code needs to be able to access that secret right, it, so that it can reference it and grab it and you know put it in your template and do the magic. Is that how that? Yeah, you you can define your role in your provider block as well for Terraform. So you're effectively the role that you are assuming. Um, when you go to do like a Terraform plan, it can, you can tell it to assume a role within your, like say AWS provider. Um, and that role that, you know, is being assumed could have access to the underlying secret. So like you directly as user Adam Oberhauser and, or perhaps like a, you know, a role like AWS delegated administrator or something that you guys set up doesn't itself need to explicitly have access to the secret, but, but the role that you can assume to do infrastructure's code deployments would have access then in that case. But, but yeah, there, that's, that's another good point as well, because I mean, you want to, you want to apply a least privilege, I'd say approach to how you grant access, uh, or for your ops slash your dev team as well. You know, and in that case, there's a more of like a, a build user or something like a build role that can be assumed, uh, that build role could be specific to say like an environment. So perhaps you know, I have a stage build role, maybe that stage build role only has access to stage resources. So you don't have, you know, drift into prod, for example, mm -hmm. um, if you're, you know, within the same account or something like that. So there's, there's a way you can, you know, better strategize how you grant access as I think the, the underlying thing there. And the other thing, the other fun bit with, with Terraform is that there is a state file, that state file, you need a backing state management. So you can, you can store state locally which is not a recommended approach if, you know, you're working in a multi-team, you know, a multi-member capacity. So you'll have to leverage some form of uh, shared state uh, repository like S3 or perhaps um, like Terraform Cloud. Um, there's a couple different ways you can you store your remote state file so multiple people can do a deployment, but that state file can contain sensitive data. So you want to ensure in that case uh, that, you know, however you store that state file, it's encrypted. And it remains encrypted in transit as well as is a good practice. Um, Terraform Cloud by default it's encrypted. If you if you utilize S3, you can set encrypted on you know set the object as being encrypted. Leverage the S3 backed encryption, or you can use your own KMS case. I think it really depends too on the the architecture, right? What what you're building on EC2s, containers, uh, or serverless, right? It's gonna depend on how you do your your credentials and secrets and how they get injected and right and how the infrastructure code plays with that 
something that I've been leaning towards more is is kind of not having you know any credentials, right? Just leveraging that role, and then any credentials you need, pulling them at runtime. You know, so sometimes you can do that, sometimes you can't, right? It depends on your architecture. And with serverless, that's now adding to you know calls that it has to make, you know, in your your cold start to to grab those credentials. But it's just easier, cleaner that way, right? You kind of want your your app to be pulling credentials anyway, right? If you're rotating them, um, yep. you want to be able to update those and, you know, have your app just have a cache and, you know, it's pulling the latest every five minutes or whatever behind the scenes every hour. Yeah. Versus having to put it in your infrastructure as code. So if you can, right, that's, that's what I've been doing. Like, like this product. That's a very good approach, actually. And that's that's something uh, I was working with a client and we were we're trying to get into that state. So it was it wasn't an original offering. And what we were doing is we were uh, sending a random generated string for like an RDS master password, as well as uh, a read only user within the database. The code at the time was not uh, equipped to say, like, if you if if you were to try to connect using, you know, the credentials that were provided to try to uh, fetch them again from the provided secret. And I know AWS now offers uh, part of the SDK. You can actually rotate the the RDS password itself. So I was working with them so they could update the application logic to say if we, you know, if we fail to uh, authenticate and, and connect the database, let's try to grab the secret again um, from Secrets Manager. So it wasn't it wasn't something that they were pulling every so often. It was essentially pull it until it fails. Uh, or well, keep it cached until it fails. Once it once it fails, we'll try to pull again. Um, but this allowed for us to implement like automated rotation of RDS passwords, which is just uh, a good security best practice, I think, in general. You know, really, really, it, it minimizes downtime because connections that are already you know being made to the database stay active until they're dropped, and uh, um, you know, at that point, there's there's minimal user there's minimal user experience disruption, I guess, in that case. So. Definitely a, a step in the right direction and what they took there. I'd say the other thing, um, just real quick, I know we're we're coming up on time here. Speaking about credentials, you can you can define outputs as well. Uh, outputs can also contain sensitive data, so you may need to be selective with you know what exactly you should you know expose as an output whenever you do a deployment. Things such as like certain IDs or keys. Those are something you wouldn't want to output, or maybe like whatever the the generate a generated password would be. You, you may not want to output that in clear text, largely because uh, these are going to be you know visible within the state file. There are a couple tools as well that we kind of briefly mentioned early on, but we I don't think we named. There's a lot of lot of good practices around handling um, like testing and validation. Some cool things that I had found here just prior to the podcast here today. And these are these are all open source tools. CloudFormation, there's some testing tools such as EFN Lint. Uh, that is a code, static code analysis for, for CloudFormation in a way to essentially just validate the YAML or JSON templates against CloudFormation resource specifications. Definitely starred that repo. Uh, I think I'll be, something I'm going to try here um, at a later point uh, here this week. Uh, just see if we, you know, if we find anything that maybe like wasn't properly or something like that according to best practices. EFN NAG looks for security vul vulnerabilities within your your infrastructure. There's a another one uh, related to uh, Terraform, such as like Terra Test, 
uh, which is an open source Go library for testing infrastructure. So a couple of neat tools out there on the open source uh, front, um, indie-backed tools that I think could be, you know, they were new to me and I would love to see if they provide you. Cool. With that in mind, um, you know, we are, we are towards the 30 minute mark here. And I just wanted to say, you know, thanks to all of our listeners out there for joining us. Uh, we hope you found this informative next week. We will be having, uh, Lance Carlson, uh, host an episode on programming with ChatGPT and going over, uh, the chain of thought methods of, for programming with ChatGPT. Definitely look forward to that episode. Uh, I'm sure we'll feature some, some expert guests and have some value, valuable conversation. 